Hi, my name is Jeremy Leitinen, and I'm here with Michael Zarling. We are offering you this episode of our Thirsty Podcast. Uh, today we're going to look at four chapters from the book of Revelation, especially uh, today we're going to start with chapter 16. And we have some uh, pretty depressing things to talk about, uh, but maybe you can tell that the Holy Spirit is at work through these words because uh, God predicted that uh, we would have a, a depressing world that we would live in from the time that Jesus ascended until now. Um, and uh, so when you see that God's words are coming true as they've been foretold in the book of Revelation, uh, that can tell you that all of God's other promises will come true as well. So uh, let's jump right in with Revelation chapter 16. And uh, you've got, again, that theme that we've been talking about of the different camera angles on the on the soccer play or the football catch. Uh, and uh, now we have it from the cam camera angle of seven bowls of God's wrath that he pours out on the earth. And these the seven bowls are very similar to the seven trumpets that we read earlier in chapters 8, 9, and 11. Uh, as he did there, the judgments are going to strike the sea, the land, the inland waters, and the heavens. But there is uh, greater judgment that is going to be poured out with these, with these bowls. So you have the first bowl, and just like the first trumpet, they both affect the earth, but then the first trumpet only affected part of the earth, while this uh, first bowl harms those with the mark of the beast. Uh, the second trumpet and the second bowl each affect the sea. The second trumpet harms only part of the sea, while the second bowl uh, harms the whole sea. And then the third bowl uh, follows the third trumpet. They're both, both affecting the springs of water. The third trumpet only affected uh, parts of the springs of the water while the bowl affects all of them. And then the fourth bowl is like the fourth trumpet affecting parts of the sky, whereas uh, the fourth bowl causes the sun to scorch. And all of these bowls are really affecting the unbelievers. When we talk about bad things happening in the lives in the lives of God's children and in the lives of believers in Jesus, they aren't really bad, are they? Because uh, God says he, he works all things out for the good of those who are called. And uh, so even the bad things uh, end up serving a good purpose when at first they may seem bad. So uh, as you see these bowls of judgment, um, you have to keep in mind the words that the angel says in verse 5. God is just in these judgments. He's being fair uh, as he pours out this punishment. And it, it makes me think of uh, things like the way that we take care of the environment. Obviously, you can turn the environment into a false god, uh, which many of the naturalistic uh, religions will do, that uh, God is the tree or God is the sea or the ocean or the sun. But uh, when we don't take care of it the way that God says, uh, then it's like what verse 3 says, uh, it, it, it turned into... It turned into the color of blood like the blood of a dead man. That just makes me think of, like, if you bleed, uh, you cut yourself, there's a different shade to the blood 
uh, when it's escaping your body while you're still alive, whereas if it's been sitting in a dead body and then you empty that blood out, it, it has even more of a putrid, uh, disgusting look or smell to it. And uh, that's kind of what happens when we're uh, dumping all sorts of trash into uh, God's gift of nature. And this is going to be the blood of uh, the blood of the unbelievers, the pagans. Why? Because, verse 6, they poured out the blood of saints and prophets. And so the angel says that he heard the, the, the prayers of the saints underneath the altar saying, Yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. So here the saints are praising God for his judgment. And there I was thinking of, uh, as we just remembered, uh, September 11th. I remember the Toby Keith song, courtesy of the red, white, and blue. So just a portion of the words there. Uh, hey, Uncle Sam, put your name at the top of his list. And the Statue of Liberty started shaking her fist. And the eagle will fly, man. It's going to be hell when you hear Mother Freedom start ringing her bell. And it feels like the whole wide world is raining down on you, brought to you courtesy of the red, white, and blue. Justice will be served and the battle will rage. This big dog will fight when you rattle his cage. And you'd be sorry that you messed with the U.S. of A. Because we'll put a boot in your butt. It's the American way. He didn't say butt, though. I did. But I, I think of that song. And why do Americans like singing that song and that refrain? It's because as a nation, we brought justice raining down on the terrorists that brought the two towers down and the planes down uh, 20 years ago. And God is going to do the same thing with the unbelievers that have persecuted us as Christians. I should warn the listeners that uh, in about a minute or less here, you'll hear a bell and maybe some announcements because we're actually recording this during the school day here at Shoreland Lutheran High School uh, and maybe some mumbling and rustling or loud noises from the hallways uh, as the students move from, oh, there it is. Students are going to move from class to class. And uh, just to let you know, that's what's going on as we uh, record the podcast here today. Um, the one thing that uh, strikes me is in verse 9 where it talks about the intense heat uh, of the plagues and uh, people cursing the name of God, but they refuse to repent and glorify him. So you see there the Holy Spirit's point with sending plagues or hardships into people's lives. Verse 9 shows you that God is most interested in people repenting, having a change of mind. Uh, so when he sends punishments or judgments, it's not because he enjoys or, or has any delight in uh, uh, seeing people suffer. It's because he wants them to have a change of heart. And if they don't, that is on them. That is uh, how he puts it in verse 9. The people who are suffering so severely in the plagues uh, or judgments refused to repent and glorify him. But that word plague they used is correct here because notice that all of the, the wrath that is poured out of the bowls, it, uh, it has its basis in the plagues of Egypt. Blood, painful sores, darkness. And again, this is what God pours out on the unbelieving world as part of his final judgment. And he says that in verse 12, uh, the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river, the Euphrates. And why is that? It's because this vision is based on Old Testament geography. Kings hostile to God's people regularly came from the east across the Euphrates River. 
and they'd have to wait until the spring floods receded before they could cross and move westward on their campaigns. Uh, it also makes me think of anything geographically from the east that uh, there's a lot that we can certainly learn from things like eastern medicine uh, or uh, eastern culture. Uh, but when it comes to eastern religion, uh, things that come from across the river Euphrates, uh, as John's original readers would have thought of it, um, that uh, there, there certainly could be demonic powers uh, behind those. There are demonic powers behind those religions. The, the worshiping of ancestors, the, the spirits of the family. Uh, well, those are, those are really demons that know what your ancestors looked like, how they sounded, what was important to them. And so they can make themselves appear or act like the spirits of your ancestors would act. And maybe there is even miraculous things, but they're being done by the power of the devil. And that's exactly it. In verse 14, it talks about uh, the frogs that come out of the mouth of the beast. But uh, the angel says what they are, that they are demonic spirits. And so these are, again, false doctrines and uh, evil spirits that are behind, say, Roman emperor worship, Soviet atheism, Islam, all the things that you were mentioning before. Uh, and then this all culminates in verse 16 in a great battle at Armageddon. And that's the literal place of Megiddo or Mount Carmel, the site of the crucial pass between Egypt and Mesopotamia. And there were a lot of great battles that uh, were fought in the valley below Mount Carmel. And we think of Mount Carmel as the great showdown between the prophet Elijah and the priests of Baal. I, th I think those were two different mountains, Megiddo, uh, Ahab uh, had his capital city there, Samaria, and then, uh, and then Mount Carmel. They may have been very near to each other, uh, but you're right. It's a crossroads of, uh, of, of the world at that time. Uh, and so since it's a crossroads, it's also going to be hotly contested. Um, and the point is not that we should gather at that lo physical location uh, or expect that Jesus is going to appear at there. Uh, he might, but uh, that's, he's, that's not the point of this. The point is there's going to be a, a great gathering for, for warfare at the end of the world, uh, whatever the physical location is. And uh, I just wanted to throw in the comment when we did this in a Bible class at my first congregation. Um, you see those frogs, so you're thinking of amphibious animals or something close to reptiles. They're connected maybe a little to the snake uh, or the dragon. Um, but uh, I asked a trucker, his name was Irv, uh, he's since gone on to glory, is uh, what, what do you think of when, when you think of frogs in Bible class? And, and he said, they squash well. <laughs> there and, you go. And, and that's a neat thing to think of, that finally the power of Satan is something that in the name of Jesus gets squashed well. Yeah. And with that place of Armageddon, uh, what it's saying there is the battle is going to get intense. And for a little while, it will, seem as it will seem as if evil is going to win and is winning. But in the end, like throughout the rest of Revelation, the victory is God's and his victory is ours. And this same battle is described in Revelation 11 and 19 and 20 and in Matthew 24. So uh, it's the same thing that we've been saying before over and over again of repeating the, vict the victory of Christ at the end. 
uh, to just the different camera angles of, of the sporting plays. Uh, and, and now we move on to uh, a mystery, uh, Babylon the Great. It, at the very end of chapter 16, John mentions Babylon, uh, a city being split up into all of these parts and, and torn, torn to pieces. Uh, and then it's, it's like the Holy Spirit says, okay, now let me explain a little bit more to you about this Babylon that I'm talking about. Um, there are a, a couple of ways to approach this. Uh, I'd say the main one is, first of all, you have to remember Babylon was the greatest enemy of the ancient Israelite people. They had a lot of neighboring countries that gave them grief, but Babylon was the one that finally took them into captivity. Uh, and so we see this woman, and uh, she has a lot of similarities to the woman uh, that gave birth to the Christ uh, from earlier in Revelation, uh, I think was that chapter 12 or 14, when uh, yep, the archangel. And, and so uh, in verse 5, uh, we get her name tag. It's tattooed on her forehead. Um, and uh, it says mystery. So the way I always say that is, first of all, mystery means you would never figure this out unless God told it to you. Uh, it would look like the exact opposite of what you think this is unless God told, revealed it to you. And the title of Babylon is a, a clue of uh, where and who this prostitute is. Uh, First Peter, uh, Paul, Peter says, uh, uses the name Babylon as a cryptic name for Rome. Uh, he writes at the end of his first epistle, she who is in Babylon, who is chosen along with you, greets you. So that kind of uh, tells you uh, where this prostitute is located, and we're going to get into that then. So you would never figure this out, mystery, but this is actually the greatest enemy of God's people, Babylon the Great, uh, the mother of prostitutes. So this is a, an entity that uh, teaches unfaithfulness. Uh, she, she teaches her children how to be unfaithful to their Lord. Uh, and then, and of the abominations of the earth. There's all kinds of just despicable, disgusting uh, unseemly, just unsavory things that you couldn't even mention uh, out loud uh, are the type of things that happen in this entity, this, this organization that is uh, the hidden greatest enemy of the church. And this, this hidden enemy of the church, I didn't pick up on it until studying it again for the podcast, is uh, she's a prostitute. And then, as you said before, Jeremy, you know, Christ is pictured as the bridegroom, and then we are the faithful bride. So she's one that wants to be the bride of Christ and wants to look like the bride of Christ, but she isn't. She, she is the exact opposite. She has so, so many things in, in, uh, similar to the woman from uh, chapter 12, uh, that uh, she's in the wilderness. Uh, but uh, it's interesting that she is sitting on many waters. What, what verse was that? Uh, I think verses, verse Oh, one who is sitting in many waters. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so the, the, the word there that it should make you think of is worldwide or universal. Uh, and uh, according to the whole is uh, another way of saying uh, according to the whole world is where she is located. Uh, the, the Greek word for that is katholes, uh, is, uh, is Catholic. Oh, and let's see. 
who you're, you're you kind of stole my thunder trying oh, to figure sorry. out who this is. Yes. Uh, just going through this. Uh, she committed adulteries with the kings of the earth that the kings should have married the king of kings, but they chose to take this woman as their consort. Uh, she's dressed in purple and scarlet, so she's taken on the color of the world. She's taken on the color of the beast that she's riding. Uh, so she sits on the beast from the sea. So that means that she has allied herself with the beast out of the sea, which we've identified before as governments that persecute Christians. Um, she held a golden cup filled with abominable things, so she drinks what's shameful, a spirit of rebellion against Christ. Uh, you've talked about the, her name as mystery, and she's drunk on the blood of the saints. That means she has killed those who bore testimony against her. And she's covered with gold and jewels, so she has grown rich from her adulteries. And, uh, yeah, just thinking of that, uh, is, there, is there some kind of an entity that looks church-like and yet also looks an awful lot like a worldly government, that there, that there is a, an embassy to it, that there is a <laughs> political borders, that, that it's considered when there are heads of state that gather, that there's a head of state that gathers uh, from this entity along with them. I, I, I am already tipping my hand, but I want to say the word Catholic is not a bad thing. Yeah. Uh, it, it is a good thing that God uh, has a universal church, but it's unseen. It's not one that you can say this visible organization is the uh, Holy Christian Church. And then in verse 9, it says the seven heads are seven hills on which the woman is sitting. So there are seven hills that this place uh, has around it. And you know we already said this place is Rome. It's Babylon. Well, what is situated in Rome and has been situated in Rome since the time of Paul when he writes in 2 Thessalonians about the Antichrist and so forth, the, the lawlessness, the lawless man, the man of sin? It, it's, it's interesting that for John's first readers, they would have thought of the uh, godless government springing from the, the sea or from the seven hills that is Rome. Uh, but today, uh, what is it that is centered in on the seven hills uh, it's in Rome? Uh, it's the Vatican. It's the Vatican. It's the papacy. And you can see throughout history how the the papacy has worked alongside of governments to persecute Christians. Uh, the so-called Holy Roman Empire at the time of the Reformation, the Spanish Inquisition. Inquisition, the persecution of Protestants in the Netherlands and France, the small called war against Lutherans, burning John Huss at the stake, and so on. Uh, there's, there's even more uh, interesting connections to this topic in chapter 18. So uh, unless you had more on 17, I, I'm ready to move on because we're not really going to change the subject much. Uh, chapter 18 is uh, talking about how this great enemy that you wouldn't think was the enemy. When you, when you look at Catholicism, uh, you do see there are believers in it. Uh, and you do see Christians, uh, maybe many or even more than uh, in a lot of uh, Protestant or evangelical uh, church bodies. But uh, we're seeing a prediction here in Revelation that this is also the uh, unfaithful wife. And John receives the promise in verse 2 that this prostitute will not get to last forever. This prostitute will be brought down. And just an application 
uh, I received an interesting email from someone who's uh, become close in her family uh, wanting to leave the Catholic Church because of the things that the, the Pope, the current Pope, uh, the bishops, her own priests and so forth, have been saying about denying religious freedom. And so thereby connecting themselves with our American government, taking away her uh, religious and medical freedom and asking for help from me and then saying, you know what? I see there's a lot of similarities between the Lutheran faith and the Catholic faith. I'm, I'm willing to convert. And this shouldn't surprise us at all because it's like I have known uh, Catholics over the more recent years that see the things that Pope Francis has done and hear them. And they are, in, they are infuriated that he would uh, take stands and say things like he has said. And what does it feel like? It feels like you've been betrayed, doesn't it? Uh, you as a, a Catholic believer, that you have you have that th- you've been uh, cheated upon, uh, that you're a spouse that has been wronged in a relationship because you had this uh, spiritual advisor or overseer that uh, was teaching you the the way of truth, and then suddenly uh, he flip flops, uh, and that that feels a lot like a an adulterous spouse, doesn't it? That, that you're now being cheated on. You're being told that one thing that was good and true is now not good and true. Um, and so it's, it's very fitting. And I, the reason I'm saying all this is based on verse 4, because God does have people there. He has believers in this church. So let's not come across as anti-Catholic. Uh, that's not the case at all. We are very pro-Catholic. Uh, God says, come out of her, my people, so that you, may, you will not share in her sins. You, there are people that God has chosen within her, and they, they need to come out. Yeah, and that was the exact verse I was going to quote, too. Come out of her, my people, so you don't share in her sins, so you won't receive any of her plagues. Because... Half of my family uh, are or used to be Catholic, and I think half of the people that God has used me to convert and bring into the Wisconsin Synod over 25 years of ministry have come from the Catholic Church. Uh, I haven't used this verse in saying come out of her, but it is applicable. Mm Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And the one that I've been kind of eager to get to is it's one of my favorite things that occurred to me. Actually, it didn't occur to me. Uh, there was a woman that I used to go and visit and have one-on-one Bible studies with uh, when we lived in Kansas uh, at her apartment building. And sometimes some of their neighbors would join us for these Bible studies, but usually it was just the two of us in the lobby. And uh, we read through the book of Revelation. And when we got to verse 7 of chapter 18, uh, this woman had a great insight. Um, the, the, she said, the, the whore Babylon is uh, saying the words in verse 7, I sit as queen, I am not a widow, and I will never mourn. Uh, and, and this woman, her name is uh, Joanne. Uh, Joanne said, really, this prostitute is uh, saying, my husband never died. And I thought that is a, that is a really deep insight hmm. that uh, the the prostitute, the unfaithful bride, says, "I don't need my husband to die for me. I can I can take care of myself. I can uh, remove my own sin. Uh, it, I, I want to be married. I want to have a husband, but I I don't need him to be my redeemer and savior. Uh, and so I'm not going to repent either. That's I will never mourn." I'm the queen, I'm in charge, and I will never repent. I will never have a change of mind. I will never mourn. 
And it gives us a clue, too, of who this uh, Babylon, this prostitute is, in that there are three groups who benefited from their prosperity of being connected to her. Uh, there's the ruling class, the kings. There are the merchants who sold her many costly and splendid things and those who were made rich by bringing these costly and splendid things by ship. You can think of ship captains and ocean travelers and sailors to the city of Rome. And yet, uh, it says that in the beginning, in verse 2, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. And then you go down to verse 11 and so forth that the merchants of the earth and the others are going to weep and mourn because of her. Well, Jeremy, why are they weeping and mourning? Uh, because they lost their gravy train. Yeah. Uh, they, they were getting, uh, uh, and, and you can see this too, uh, when you uh, tour places, uh, cathedrals, uh, when you tour the Vatican, um, you, you can see all of the wealth and riches that, that have come uh, through the, the, the Roman Catholic Church and uh, that there has been a, a lot of people that have benefited, businessmen and, and uh, ruling class, like you said. Um, the only other thing I wanted to say on this chapter is that one time uh, when I was living in Germany, we, the students at the seminary I attended would take turns leading chapel, and you didn't really have to preach a, a sermon or give a devotion. You just sort of had to stand up and say the right words and uh, uh, read, a, read a Bible lesson for the day. Uh, and there was one time that uh, I had this, actually, chapter 18 from Revelation to uh, read as a, a, the Bible lesson in, in chapel. So I, I got to, I had to practice quite a bit to rattle off all of these uh, obscure German words for things like cinnamon and spice and incense and myrrh and uh, olive oil and all the different uh, stones and jewels that are uh, listed throughout this chapter. Yeah, and the last thing I was going to say on it, too, is uh, that they're going to mourn uh, over the fall of Babylon. Uh, but verse 20 says, Rejoice over her heaven, also you saints, apostles, and prophets, because God has judged her for the judgment you receive from her. Uh, so the rejoicing comes from seeing the attack of Christians being gone forever. And uh, the phrase never again is used six times in verses 21 through 23. It underscores the complete and final destruction of this enemy of God's people. And notice how quickly this end will come for the Antichrist. It's going to be destroyed in one hour. So again, there is the comfort for us uh, that there will be an end to the persecution. Uh, and I find it interesting that the millstone, I don't think there's really symbolism in the millstone, but it's thrown into the sea. Where the beast comes out of the sea, that's the government that persecutes Christians and works alongside of the prostitute of Babylon. The millstone goes there, destroys everything. It's done. There's victory again for us as Christians. And, and that theme has continued throughout chapter 19 that... Uh, God says, let's go back to Romans, where God says, vengeance is mine. And I think that's even an Old Testament quote. So God said it before Romans too. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Uh, God doesn't say there is no such thing as revenge. He, he just says, I want to be in charge of doling it out. And, uh, and, and he doesn't even say that it's a bad thing to like revenge. 
Um, in fact, that that's what we have hardwired into us. That uh, it it bugs us when the scales are not balanced. Uh, when when people do things that are wrong and they aren't punished for it, or when they do things that they're right and are not uh, rewarded, or they are punished for doing the right thing. And um, what we see throughout chapter 19, and what we've been talking about in chapter 18, is that. Uh, it's it's a good and God-pleasing thing when we rejoice over revenge being carried out. Not on our terms, not according to our uh, judgments or scales, but when God carries out vengeance, uh, you know that it's, it's done right. And there's something I forgot to bring up in the last chapter, uh, that the beast out of the sea turns on the prostitute. Okay. Mm. And there I thought of a story I read this last week. I shared it yesterday with my confirmation students, and they were just rapt attention because they told a story about a young girl, I think a teenager, that had a pet python. And this pet python would sleep in the bed with her. You know, you and I may think, that's not really very safe. <laughs> well, after several weeks, the the girl and her parents took the snake to the vet because it looked all weak and withered and, and skinnier than it had been before. And the vet said, yeah, it's starving itself so it has room to eat you. <laughs> the kids were, what? Well, yeah, of course. The snake is going to turn on its owner. It's going to be hungry. It sees the owner as food. Well, that's the key. As much as the, the government that persecutes Christians and the antichrist of the papacy and false religions work together to persecute Christians, they don't eventually like each other. They they're, they're going to turn on each other. And that's one of the things I enjoy seeing <laughs> in our work woke world as we see those that, again, oppose Christians eventually because they have no al- real allies, they'll turn on each other too. They have no, they have no concept or notion of forgiveness, yeah. what forgiveness really is. So they end up turning on each other. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we've got uh, between 15 and 20 minutes before my next class period starts. <laughs> so uh, we definitely should talk about this uh, character, the rider on the white horse. Before we get there, I oh, just yes. wanted, I want to pick up two... I wanted to share that story, but what you said, Jeremy, about the uh, the vengeance. Vengeance is the Lord, and yet we as Christians can rejoice over that. That's the first three verses. Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are just and true. He has condemned the great prostitute, corrupted the earth with her immorality. A second time, hallelujah, her smoke goes up forever and ever. Again, this is much like... Uh, the song that the Israelites sang on the shore, uh, the song of Miriam, the song of Moses, right after God's judgment destroyed the entire army of uh, the Pharaoh of Egypt how in, in counter- the waters of the Red Sea. How countercultural to say, let's celebrate somebody, got, somebody getting beat down. <laughs> That's really what it is. The smoke rises up. Oh, isn't isn't that such a wonderful thing to see uh, the the smoke reminding us that somebody's burning down there? Um, yes. So I was listening to this on on the drive over here to Shoreland, and uh, the imagery that came into my head because I didn't grow up watching NFL football with my dad. He liked watching AWA wrestling, hmm. and then WWF, which is now WWE, and I just thought of you know I've seen enough of these things like a cage match, and you get. The bad guy throws the good guy through a table and up against the chain links fence and hits him with the steps or a chair. And just when he's ready to get pinned, the good guy kicks out 
and then he does everything back. And then the crowd cheers when he drives the, the bad guy into the table or he uh, body slams him off the top rope. I know way too much about this stuff. Uh, when he hits him with the, the chair and so forth, and then there is judgment, there is justice, and the people get excited about it. And that's the way I think we are when God brings his righteous judgment on those that have hit us with chairs and tables and so forth. I, I was thinking of the uh, scene from uh, the Star Wars movie where the Ewoks are turning the st- stormtroopers helmets into xylophones and they're, they're, they're celebrating and playing, sort of dancing on the graves of the Empire. Um, there you go. I feel bad that I didn't bring that one up. Uh, th- hey, that's why I'm here. Uh, I, I do think it's a good thing in verse 9 to be reminded of Holy Communion, that uh, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb, and you get a little foretaste of that wedding supper in the, in the sacrament of the altar. Do you want to talk a little bit about the, the difference between the betrothal and marriage of the Jewish culture compared to ours? Because uh, in my notes... What, if we what, can do it in uh, six minutes or less. Okay, what, what I found out is, and I knew this, but in studying this is, you know, in Jewish culture, there would be the, uh, the marriage or the engagement, and now the husband and wife are legally married. But their ceremony and then the, the consummation of the marriage happens later. Instead of, uh, in our culture, it's all the same day. What John is talking about here is you and I as the bride of Christ, we were married to Christ as our bridegroom that happened in our baptism, in our conversion. But we enjoy a foretaste of the, the celebration feast, like you said, Jeremy, in communion. Every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we even pray that afterwards. Mm-hmm. Thank you for the foretaste of the marriage feast of the Lamb. But everything is consummated and we have the marriage feast when we arrive in heaven. It's, it's true. And then you get a glimpse of the groom uh, riding out, uh, the rider on the white horse. Uh, whatever you may have thought about the rider on the white horse at the uh, beginning of Revelation with the four horsemen of the apocalypse, uh, the, this rider on the white horse uh, most definitely is Jesus. Uh, his name is uh, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Uh, he, he is the Word of God, which the God, John's Gospel identifies as uh, Christ in the flesh. Um, I, I will say that uh, you get a little bit more of the vengeance talk at the end of chapter 19, that uh, they rejoice over the fact that God has torn apart and torn to pieces the flesh of the enemy soldiers. Uh, but before that happens, we have this character. And uh, I'll just say that uh, take notice of how everyone's dressed, that the rider on the white horse is the only one who has blood on his robe. And uh, it's not a blood for purifying uh, we are all dipped in Jesus' blood to purify us from sin, but all the other riders, all the rest of his army, are all wearing spotless white robes. In other words, they don't have to do the fighting in order to save themselves. They already have a warrior who has done the fighting for them, uh, and that is Jesus. Yeah, and some will say that the blood that's on the robe of, the, of Jesus riding is his own. But another way of looking at it is it's the blood of his enemies. You know, it's been splattered as he goes into battle. Uh, and then, like you said, too, there is the Lamb's high feast for us as saints in heaven. 
and then the unbelievers, they're going to be picked apart by the birds. And uh, we know that, it, I, I'd say there's even a stronger argument that it's somebody else's blood and that uh, Jesus is uh, bearing this blood that was uh, spattered on him from, his, from fighting his enemies. When you look at uh, Isaiah, and I'm not going to get the chapter right, is it 60? It's, it's in the 50s or 60s of the prophet Isaiah, but it talks about the Messiah coming up from Edom, and he says, uh, people ask him, why is your uh, robe all splattered with blood? And he says, it's from fighting the enemies of God's people. It's from I, Isaiah 63. 63. Yeah. Uh, who is this that's coming up from Edom? He's got a blood splattered robe and uh, the the mystery warrior says that's the Messiah. And he says, uh, this is the blood of the enemies. Nobody helped me fight them. I fought them all on my own. Uh, and I drenched myself with their blood. Um, it kind of makes me think of the movie, the Patriot mm -hmm. with Mel Gibson, where when they show the movie on TV, at least years ago, they had to actually discolor. There was a scene where he, he slaughtered a bunch of British soldiers and he, and he got himself drenched in their blood. And, uh, if you watch it on TV, the censors would make it brown instead of red, uh, just because it was so blood soaked. And that's really the picture you have of Jesus here trampling our enemies for us. Anything else? I think that's all I've got. So next week, we're going to conclude our study of Revelation with this podcast. We're going to cover the last three chapters. Uh, but I also started an in-depth study for the saints at Water of Life. We covered Revelation chapter 1 today, and it took us about 50 minutes. And you can find that on Water of Life's YouTube channel. So every day when I record it, uh, I'll post it on there as well. Uh, so last week, I named Pastor Lightning for one of the villains in the Godzilla movies. So today I'm going to give you the name of one of the big heroes in it who has lightning that comes from the spikes and shields on his back. So this is Pastor Zarling with Godzilla. Stay thirsty, my friends, then drink deeply from the water of life. <laughs>